0: Bibles, and turn with me to John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14. We began last week looking at verses 15 through 26, and we're going to continue that this week. In these verses, the Lord Jesus promises His disciples that He would send the Holy Spirit to them after He has ascended back to the Father. And the aim of what Jesus is saying here, his purpose in telling his disciples this, is to comfort them in the midst of the great trouble and discouragement that they are facing as Jesus prepares to lay down his life. Chapters 13 through 16 are what we could call the upper room discourse of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He is preparing them for the reality that he will soon die. And then he is comforting his disciples that his death is not actually defeat, but it is actually part of the plan he has had from the very beginning. And now he is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he is saying that when he departs from them, he will send the Holy Spirit among them to continue the ministry that he has begun In In fact, Jesus will later say in this discourse over in chapter 16, verse 7, he tells them, it is to your advantage that I go away. That while they're mourning the fact that he is soon going to die and he will no longer be with them, it is to your advantage, he says, that that I go away. For For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Jesus' point here is that his death is not the end of the story, that things are not falling apart, that it is not all over when he departs. His death is not the end of the line. Their three years with him had not been wasted time. Their faith in him was not in vain. And he has not been defeated. But that indeed this is part of his eternal plan and then he tells them here in chapter 14 verse 12 whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do and greater works than these will he do because i am going to the father so with jesus departure will come the holy spirit and with the arrival of the holy spirit he says your ministry is actually going to take off and accelerate there will be an expansion of gospel ministry." At this new phase after his death and burial and resurrection which made salvation possible for all who believe Jesus will now empower all of his disciples his disciples then and his disciples now throughout all ages he will empower them with the Holy Spirit to now carry that good news to all the nations to make disciples of all people for his glory. And through these disciples, he will draw his chosen ones to himself. So Jesus gives heavenly comfort to his disciples in the midst of their darkest hour and in the midst of his darkest hour. And he encourages them with the truth that he is preparing for them a whole new phase in ministry a whole new stage in their discipleship. And there is no need for them to be afraid no matter what they face because He is always with them. You now, as we saw last week in verse 15, this promise be- belongs to all who are in Christ, to those who love Him and keep His commandments, those who love and obey Him. That means this is a promise that belongs to, to true Christians, to his people. And with that in mind, let's read our passage again together. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth And I in you, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. To you. This passage highlights the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in this passage, Jesus Christ, the Son, explains the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people. And I mentioned last time that whenever we come to a discussion of the Holy Spirit, we have to be very careful. Because there is a lot of confusion, there is a lot of distortion and speculation about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he operates in the world today. We need to be clear, we need to be precise, we need to be biblical in our thinking. And it's another reminder that when we study the scripture and when we draw our conclusions and plant our feet in our doctrine, we need to plant our feet where Scripture plants our feet. We need to draw the lines that Scripture draws. We need to draw them as thickly as Scripture draws them, lest we draw lines where Scripture does not draw them. And what this means is that we must let Scripture inform what we believe and what we say about the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, especially here, we tend to run off track and get ourselves into trouble. You see, many are interested today in the reality of the Holy Spirit, in the idea of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a good thing. But, unfortunately, many discussions of the Holy Spirit have been driven by emotions, feelings, major experiences, and that often leads into an expectation of, spectacular signs and miracles and and certain impressions and feelings and, and superficial blessings and all of that. We talked last week about the problem of modern Christianity's emphasis on our worship as an experience. And all this is often separated from a true knowledge of Scripture, and it is very often separated from any language that Scripture actually uses. As we study what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit, we must let the Bible speak. And when we do, we find something much better than the made-up ideas that are so often given to us. When we let the Bible speak, we find true and lasting comfort. We find true encouragement and strength as we consider who God the Holy Spirit really is. We'll see that the true ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world today is not something that has to be conjured up in an environment like this. It is something that every believer possesses, every believer experiences in everyday life, every moment, forever whether we feel like it or not. So these verses are a key passage in teaching us about the Trinity and in highlighting the relationship of the Holy Spirit and what the nature of His ministry is among us. And in, these, in this passage, we see three aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. First, we see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Himself. We looked at that last time. Second, we see union with Christ. And then third, we see the love of the Father. Indwelling of the Spirit, union with Christ, love of the Father. So first of all, we see the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verses 16 and 17, and then down in verses 25 and 26. It is a promise that Jesus makes to all of His disciples that the Holy Spirit will dwell in them. And that is a promise that will be applied at the moment of conversion. So we need to understand that this isn't a two-stage spirituality thing where, where we get saved at this point in our life, and then somewhere down the road the Holy Spirit comes to us. This is all at the same time. When we are born again, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. We covered this point last time, so I don't want to preach it all again today, but just by way of review, we saw not only the promise that the Holy Spirit would indwell His people, but we also considered what that looks like in our lives because we're not left to guess this on our own. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to imagine what we think the Holy Spirit might do. We're told, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit in verse 16 as another helper. Another helper. That word another we saw meant another of the same kind. The same kind as what? As Christ who had already been among them. And so this is another helper. One who would come to the disciples and do in them what Jesus had already been doing for them. And we learn, in fact, in chapter 15, verse 26, that the Spirit's ministry is to testify of Christ or to point to Christ. Jesus was their leader. He was their protector. He was their provider. He was their teacher. He was their encourager. He was their comforter. And we could add to that list much more. All these things is what the Holy Spirit continues to do in the lives of God's people all the way down through the generations. So if you want to see what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in the life of a believer, look at the ministry of Christ in the believer. He is pointing us there. Then in verse 17, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And he emphasizes the main focus and the characteristic of that of the Holy Spirit's ministry among us. He points us to the truth that is revealed in the Word of God. He helps us to understand who God is and what He has said. Just as He had led the disciples to remember all that Jesus had taught to them and then to write it down in inspired Scripture, so also the Holy Spirit leads us to understand what has been revealed and then to live by it. So this is the normal, everyday, ordinary, if I can say it that way, ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in God's people, even today. And if you are in Christ, if you belong to God through salvation, through Christ, then the Holy Spirit is already doing this work in you. The Holy Spirit is already at work in you, whether you feel it from one day to the next or not. This is an objective reality that every believer possesses. This is the powerful work of God's Spirit in all of God's people, and it is all we need. We don't have to be looking for some greater signs. We don't have to be looking for something that is a a more spectacular or immersive experience. We have the Holy Spirit at work in us, leading us to understand what has been revealed, sanctifying us in the truth, pointing us to Christ. We're going to build on that now as we move on to our second point. We've seen the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Now let's move on to verses 18 through 20 and consider another aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and that is bringing us into union with Christ. Union with Christ. I've already mentioned that the Spirit's role is to testify of Christ, to point our attention to Him. The Holy Spirit's ministry is about our relationship with the Godhead altogether. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit brings us into union with Christ, who is the Son of God. So look at what Jesus says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, Again, he's speaking in the context of his death that is soon to come and his departure from this world. And Jesus tells them that Though he physically is going away, he is not going to leave them alone. I am not abandoning you, he says. You might feel helpless at the moment because your world is about to change. Jesus says, I am not abandoning you. Now, in the context of what we've already seen about the Holy Spirit, and how he carries on this ministry that has already been started and how he continues to build on what Jesus has on the groundwork that Jesus has laid what would you expect Jesus to say next after i will not leave you as orphans you might expect him to say i will send the holy spirit to you i will not leave you as orphans i'm going to send the holy spirit to you and indeed that's exactly what he's going to do and he has already said he would do that, but that's not what he says in verse 18. What does he say in verse 18? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Now, you're, n- now you've got me in circles here. You said you're going away, but you're also saying you're going to come to me. But you've also talked about the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? What does he mean? Well, I think there are several possibilities that we can consider. The first two aren't quite as strong. The third one, I think, is the right one. But the first possibility is that he is simply talking about his resurrection. That I am going to go away in death, and three days later, I will come back to you. He would leave them, but he would return from the dead. And indeed, that is what he did. But then he left them again, not too long after that. So I don't think this can really be an explanation for what he's talking about here, not ultimately. So a second possibility is that he's talking about his second coming at the end of the age. Could be. Certainly there is some truth there. He will return, and he will forever be with his people. His people will forever be with him. So there, the temporary aspect isn't a problem anymore. Maybe it's talking about his second return at the end of the age. But here's another problem. That is a return that every eye will see. But in a couple sentences here, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus is clearly describing something that only his disciples know. So I don't think it can be that explanation either. There's a third explanation that I think is the true focus and is the point of what Jesus is truly promising them. He is promising that that his dwelling in them through the Holy Spirit, that's what he is talking about, that he will dwell with them through the Holy Spirit. It is a promise that was fulfilled and and begun, if you will, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus will soon tell his disciples in the Great Commission, I am with you always, to the end of the age. He's going away, but he says, I am with you always. Though his physical body is no longer here, Jesus promises to dwell with and even dwell in his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, sometimes the Holy Spirit is even called the Spirit of Christ in Scripture. Why? How is that possible? Because they are both God. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds. The Spirit is the one who does that indwelling work, and He represents Christ in our hearts. He brings us into that union With him. So he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. By sending the Spirit, I will actually come to you. And it's a greater, it's it's a greater presence, isn't it? Because here Jesus isn't walking next to them along the road, he is dwelling within them through the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 19: Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. The unbelieving world will not see Christ. It cannot see Christ, not for who he really is, because his physical body is really all they have to go on. They walk by sight, they have no spiritual insight. They have no discernment. They have no, no work of the Holy Spirit in them to reveal to them who Jesus is. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 14, when he says, the natural person, that is the person without Christ, without the indwelling Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned that is the nature of every person apart from the work of christ through the holy spirit in their hearts unable unwilling to recognize the spiritual things of god but in contrast to the unbelieving person the apostle paul goes on just two verses later to say but we have the mind of christ We have the mind of Christ. You know, it's ironic to me that the world tries so hard to tell us as Christians how we should behave and what we should think. And it happens in so many different ways, doesn't it? How could a Christian who believes in this act this way? And how could you say you believe in God, but how about this? We're told all the time from the unbelieving world how we ought to behave as Christians. And it's ironic to me because Scripture clearly says they don't have a clue. They can't. Because our faith is not something we created and wrote down on our own. This is something God ordained. It is something the Spirit reveals to us. The world cannot know Christ. Because they do not have the Spirit of God working in them to see Him for who He is and to understand Him. But we do. We do. The Holy Spirit is working in us. That's a gift of grace from God alone. It's not something we earned. But the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And what does He do? He opens our eyes to who God is, to who Christ is, and what he has done for us. He opens our eyes to the reality of his word and the fact that we are sinners and that we need to be saved and that the only way we are saved is by faith in Jesus Christ, who is our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So for all who believe in Christ, who love him and obey his commands, as we saw in verse 15, We know Christ. We have His mind. We see His worldview. We see Christ spiritually. One day we'll see Him physically too. And He is working in us the same way He worked in the hearts of His disciples when He walked this earth. And He is doing it through the Holy Spirit. He is doing it through the written word that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and live. Then he goes on at the end of verse 19 to say this, Because I live, you also will live. So here he takes us even beyond the the reality of the written word, and he's talking about his finished work and what it means for us in the future. (laughs) What is he talking about when he says, Because I live, you also will live. He's been telling them all along that he's going to die that he will indeed lay down his life. But when he tells his disciples that he will lay down his life, what does he also tell them? I will take it up again. Death is not the end of the story for Jesus, nor is it the end of the story for his disciples. What he means is, that His own resurrection from the dead confirms the promise of a future resurrection for all who are in Him. You can have hope because the Spirit indwells you because you will see resurrection just as surely as Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. But there's even more to it. This phrase doesn't just speak of resurrection, it speaks of eternal life. You also will live. And that's a life that Scripture describes. as not like the life we are living right now. It is a life free from the penalty and the power and even the presence of sin. That's what Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished. That's the union that we have with Christ. That is the life that the Spirit has brought to us. And then in verse 20, he says, In that day, he's talking about the day when the Comforter or the Helper will come, that day when at Pentecost the the Holy Spirit came to dwell in his people in this way in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. There's this union, this fellowship there, this this communion that we are brought into with Christ and fellowship with the Father, as we'll see in a moment, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will know. We need to hear that in an age that is all about what we feel. Your feelings change, don't they? Mine do. I guarantee you, you probably won't be in the same mood in five hours from now as you are now. If you're in a crabby mood right now, you might feel better later. If you feel good right now, watch out, because that Sunday afternoon lull is gonna come. Your feelings change. What you need to hear today is that there is something you can know. That the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go on according to your feelings. He is here to stay. And when He is there, you will know. Have you ever been in the midst of sinning and you know you need to stop? Have you ever been in the midst of Some angry outburst or some terrible thought, and you know, and even while you keep walking down that road, you're like, I know I should stop. Well, there's the same sense here where, with the Holy Spirit, you may be walking through this time of darkness and confusion, but there is an inward testimony that the Holy Spirit brings to you. He's with you. That gives a certain Reassurance to God's people, doesn't it? This darkness is not where I am to stay. He has better plans for me. When Jesus says, You will know, that has the idea of understanding and confirmation. He is telling them that they will understand what He is saying, that they will understand why he has left them there, and why he is doing in them what he is doing. And when it happens, it will be confirmation that Christ has returned to the Father. You will await the Holy Spirit. When he comes, you will know that everything I've said is true. All that began in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers in Jerusalem and empowered them to preach the gospel and to carry that good news of Jesus Christ to every part of the world. While Jesus walked this earth, that ministry was localized. When Jesus sent the helper, that ministry was globalized. And it has continued on through every generation and in the heart of every Christian ever since. Through the Holy Spirit, then, we are united to Christ. We have Christ himself dwelling in us, as it were. And scripture is full of many different images that describe, that teach what that union looks like and how that union works. In John chapter 15, we read that he is the vine and we are the branches. There are other passages throughout the New Testament that say, we are the body and he is the head. Or we are the living stones and he is the cornerstone. That we are the bride and he is the groom. And not only that, but Scripture also uses the phrase in Christ to describe our relationship with him. But it doesn't just talk about us being in Christ. It also uses the idea of Christ in us. Is that not a description of union? Of communion? Of fellowship? In other words, as one commentator has put it, Jesus has reassured his worried disciples that his death would not end their relationship with him. Their union with him was indissoluble, as is true for all believers. Nothing can separate his own from his presence and his love. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an objective reality brought to us through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. And we are because it is God who is doing that work, we are inseparable from Him. His love is inseparable from us. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit in His people. It is an unbreakable union with Christ. As we receive this union with Christ by faith in Christ alone, as our Savior and Lord, we receive the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a gracious gift from Him. That brings us to verses 21 through 24 now where we move on to the next aspect of the Spirit's work in our lives, and that is the love of the Father. In addition to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and union with Christ, we see the love of the Father as a result of the Holy Spirit's ministry in us. Now I know that that phrase can be used two different ways. Is it the love of the Father toward us, or is it our love of the Father? And my answer is yes. We love because He first loved us. And when we are brought into that love of the Father, His love toward us, we are brought to love Him as His own children. With the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes the indwelling and the empowering of the Spirit Himself. And with that comes fellowship or union with Jesus Christ. And then in that relationship, we come to know the love of the Father. So Jesus continues in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now he repeats the same point that he made in verse 15, which brings us to another important reminder when we study Scripture. When you see repetition, That's not the writer collecting his thoughts to move on to the next point. He is emphasizing something. It is important. Pick up on this point. That the promise that Jesus makes of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and union with Christ and the love of the Father is a promise that belongs only to those who are in Christ, who love Him and obey Him, who are true Christians. And true Christians are those who obey the commands that He has given out of the love that He has produced in their hearts. He restates this important point here to help us remember what is at stake and who this promise belongs to. But then he goes on in the the latter portion of verse 21, he continues, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Once again, you can't separate God the Father from God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. To truly know and love one is to truly know and love the other. And Jesus said back in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He'll go on in chapter 15 to say that whoever hates me hates my Father also. You can't separate the two. And then he teaches in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, Father and Son are inseparable. No one comes to a knowledge of either on his own. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit indwells and helps God's people through uh, the illumination of Scripture. He reveals Christ to them. He works in His people. This is why the Trinity is so necessary. You ever wonder why such a confusing doctrine is so central to the Christian faith? Because this is the only way God can die for His people. And this is the only way sinners can be brought to a knowledge of their sin and reconciled to a holy God. This is why religions like Islam, who adamantly deny the existence of a Trinity, can't have a God who saves them. God can't die. And if he did, he's gone. God remains. The Son takes on human flesh, takes the punishment of sin in our place, dies on the cross, rises again. Why? Because He's God. And the Holy Spirit applies that work to our lives. Otherwise, God is just distant and out there and unreachable and unknowable. The Trinity, the doctrine of a Trinity highlights the grace of God in reaching down to man and making reconciliation possible. And this all speaks of a close and intimate relationship of peace that all believers have through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Yes, God is holy; other. God is transcendent. God is far off. God is unknowable to a certain degree. God is unreachable to the natural man, but he is also a God who draws near to his people. He is a God who puts his own presence in the very heart of his people. What does that tell us? It tells us we can draw near to him and he will draw near to us, as James says. It tells us we can cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us that this almighty God who is transcendent over all creation and perfect in every way has made himself available, has drawn near. He has actually drawn us to himself. Now we can and I suppose we should spend the rest of our lives exploring the love of God and its marvelous implications for us. But for our purposes today and with our limited time, I just want to point your attention to one verse in Scripture. You know who wrote the Gospel of John, Right. right? John the Apostle. Do you know where he is when this particular scene in chapter 14 is happening? He is sitting right next to the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, leaning on him as they have this conversation. This John who wrote this passage understood what Jesus said here about the nearness of this union and this working in his life and it always remained with him. It affected him and governed the rest of his life. And we see it later in his life when in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, he says this, See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god how does the holy god make it possible for sinful man to be called his children it's through the lord jesus christ his death and his resurrection and the application of that through the holy spirit at work in our hearts Jesus told us He will not leave us as orphans. Here, we are told that we are made the children of God. That is the relationship of all Christians with the Holy God. This is the relationship of a child with a good and loving Father. The Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us and brings us into union with Christ. And in turn, that brings us into this relationship of love with the Father himself. There is no greater relationship. There is no greater gift. There is no greater blessing. Now in verse 22, we read that Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, this is the other Judas in Matthew 10 called Thaddeus, he says to Christ, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's thinking in primarily physical terms. How is it, are, you know, is this magic mirrors somehow? Or, you know, how, how are you going to show yourself to us and not to everyone else? I don't think this is a lack of faith on his part. I think this is a lack of understanding. And he's probably verbalizing what everyone else is thinking. How can you be visible only to some people? Why wouldn't you make yourself known? To the whole world and Jesus replies in verse 23 if anyone loves me he will keep my word my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him again he's, he's talking about this this personal relationship there but he's also talking again in terms of loving and obeying him that he will manifest himself to those who are his children But in his answer, he is reminding his disciples that this is not about an earthly kingdom. This is not about positions of greatness or deeds of religious activity. It is about the posture of the heart and our spiritual relationship with God. He makes that point from the negative perspective in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. He's saying all of this in the context of the question, why won't you reveal yourself to everyone in the world? And his point is that he is not going to reveal himself to those who reject him, who refuse to love and obey him. This is a spiritual thing. It is a matter of the heart. So Christians, we need to understand, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're a religious person, You need to understand that being a Christian is not about religious activity. It is not about social standing. It is not about personal ambition or worldly success. What's behind this question is, Jesus, why won't you just come and make yourself known right now so that everyone will believe and you can establish your kingdom right here, right now? Because they don't understand yet that everyone when he does make himself manifest, is going to reject him and crucify him. Because mankind, left to his natural state, does not seek after God, but wants nothing to do with him. That has been the case since the beginning. Religious activity is not what makes one a Christian. Personal earthly victory and triumph is not what makes Christianity what it is. Christianity is about where we stand with God. Where we stand with God. It is about a humble dependence on Him. It is about a selfless devotion to Him and a wholehearted service for Him. And it is about a life that in Him is transformed by the renewing of our minds and the spirit at work in us into Christ-like character. It is first about our relationship with with God in our conformity to Him long before it is about any blessing we might receive. Christianity isn't about how many Sundays you sit in church. It isn't about how much money you put in the box. And it isn't about how many times you bleep the curse words that come across your TV screen. It's about where do you stand with God? You answer that question by answering this. What will you do with Jesus? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to recognize the truth about Christ. He testifies of Christ. And in Christ, we find reconciliation with God the Father. This is the greatest hope, this is the greatest encouragement that anyone can hear, even in the darkest of times. I can stand up here and tell you, till I'm blue in the face, everything's going to be okay in this world. Uh, Just elect this leader. Just accomplish this level of financial success, or just go live in this place, or just get to know these people, and everything's going to be wrong, or everything's going to be right, and everything's going to be good, and I would be lying to you. Because some of you aren't going to see that. And those of you who do are going to find out it's not all it's cracked up to be because this world is a disappointing place. Because what we are most needful of is a relationship with God. To be reconciled to a holy God. And the only way that can possibly happen is through the work of Jesus Christ and the illuminating of the Holy Spirit to help us see that He is God and He is our Savior. And bringing us to that point where we will repent of sin and lay our lives down at His feet. But that is one of the greatest comforts for those who truly understand it, for those who have come to recognize that this is our only hope. Why? Because it means we don't have to find hope anywhere else in this disappointing world. And we don't have to fear living a godly life in a sinful world because the Spirit is at work in us. Christ is at work in us through His Spirit. Now, as we close, I want to offer three simple points of application. First, if all of this is true, as I've said, then the blessings that we have by the Holy Spirit rest on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where do you stand with christ today secondly if all of this is true then what we have in christ by the holy spirit is sufficient to carry us through anything what we have in christ through the holy spirit is sufficient to carry us through anything Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, and again, no never forsake. When God says never, he means it. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so finally, if all this is true, then what we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit is worth giving your entire life to pursue. Is it not? Some of you know exactly, laying down everything in this world to pursue Christ is worth everything. In fact, you'll even say, it was no sacrifice at all. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Christians, don't settle for less. This world is going to entice you with all manner of lesser things. Don't give in. Walk with Christ. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Stand in the Spirit, and you will be able to stand in the evil day. And be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor Is not in vain. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly